0: One of the things that we had done, and they had started up, which was really cool, was basically there was a thing internally called New Ventures Competition, which the firm took, you know, part of its dollars and invested it. You know, they were losing all these people to startups, right? So, like, right. We to seed our own people's startups. Ah. Internally, and you know, the, the idea could be something that was was used for clients, or it could actually be something completely consumer facing that what actually wasn't necessarily for clients. So, you know, that was one of those competitions that that me and a couple of other people wound up winning and getting you know, six-figure funding for an idea that we had, it was actually for internal use. But it's a cool, like entrepreneurial place in that respect.
1: Welcome I'm really excited to be bringing back an incredible interview with Chris Reynolds. Chris Reynolds was one of the uh, youngest associate partners at McKinsey & Company, one of the most successful consulting organizations in the world. And um, when we had our interview, he had moved to uh, HBC um, as a VP of strategy. And he was just about to move to found his own venture capital company with a partner, and they have had unbelievable success over the last couple of years. Uh, Ven Growth Partners has funded a number of early growth, mostly Canadian companies. And I know today, uh, September 22nd, they just closed a $30 million round of financing with Monos, this uh, travel company, uh, luggage company. And um We hear from Chris a whole lot. Uh, Chris is one of the speakers that will speak pretty well every year. Whenever we ask him, he comes in. He's just so committed to the organization. And uh, I know you'll love what he has to share today and uh, just about leadership and about how to find yourself as a leader in the changing economy. So you know what we're up to and why do we put this podcast out is to attract amazing young leaders to our organization. So if you know of any amazing young leaders, please share this podcast. You could send them my information at cthompson at studentworks.com, send them to our website to apply, or you could click the link in the show notes. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy this podcast and have an unbelievably fantastic day. So Chris, thank you very much for joining us on the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast.
0: Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So it's just awesome, and and again, I know you've been a a contributor to to our alumni coming and speaking at our events, and it's it's really awesome. Uh, just love your your energy, your commitment, your intelligence. Uh, you know, just wonderful to have you.
0: Nice, happy to be here. And, and if I look less energetic today, it's because I'm trying to parent through a pandemic, uh, yes. and, and launch a business all at the same time. You know, without a lot of care and support. So, it's, uh,
1: well. There's never been a time I've I've ever, you know, been with you when you don't have like lots of stuff going on. So that is, that is Chris Reynolds. So, you know, I know we had you for one year in the program back at Western, you know, you were a top performer. What do you still rely on from the program? You know, what you learned back in the day?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of things. One is just, you learn the importance of hustle Mm. and hard work. And the fact that quite frankly, There's just no real substitute for that. Yeah. And you see that it's interesting when you join the program, right? And you start going out, you're doing your your prospecting and your door knocking and you're like on that portal. I mean, I'm sure the web portal is much sleeker now than it was. it is. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's (laughs) it's, 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 yeah, it's growing the time. You know, you like see everybody's sales every single week and you see what people are entering and, you know, you talk to your peers that are in the program. And you just realize that the people, you know, there's maybe like the one person that gets like a $70,000 job to, to paint a fence. Yeah. You know, in rural Ontario, but, like, but by and large, it's a lot of individuals just hustling, putting in the time. And there's kind of no substitute for the desire to put in that real work. And I think you kind of, you learn to just love the process of doing that. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think just the hustle is just so foundational, whether it was in student works or carry forward to anything that I've done. It's, uh, you know, there's always smart people. There's always talented people, but you know, not everyone's willing to put in that time.
1: Yeah. No. And that's something that we both have in common, you know? And again, one thing you, you said, it's, you learn to love it, right? It's like gym rats, you know, people yeah. who really work out a lot in the gym. It's like, you learn to just love it. Yeah. It hurts. Yeah. It hurts. It's okay. That's yeah. great. You know? Yeah, it's
0: exactly. It's like you kind of, have, and listen, maybe the process isn't, You know, not everyone's going to love it the same, but I think if you you love it, you apply yourself and the process can be, can be a lot of fun. I mean, I always found the process much more rewarding than the end result Mm -hmm. because of the building and developing you're doing and and the grit. And there's, you know, the other thing I think from what you really take from the program is the adversity, the ability to deal with adversity at a younger age in a way that's much more real. It's not like, oh, you know, my boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever broke up with me or "I, I broke my ankle. It's. I'll never forget. Um, I'll never forget. And I think I told this story. Actually, maybe I didn't tell the story to, to you when when we did this. But you know, I'll never forget. Kind of, I was sitting having a coffee at Starbucks. I had like maybe put my feet up for the first time in a long period of time, and I was just sitting back. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I know that at that time, I think I was making six or seven bucks per employee that I had in the field per hour. Whatever right. it was, I'm like, I'm going to go earn $40, whatever, having a Starbucks coffee. <laughs> you know, net, net the cost of the latte. And then, you know, <laughs> like my phone rings. And one of my painters like, hey, you need to come over to the house. I'm like, what's wrong? They're like, fell off a ladder. Uh, you know, I was like, oh, gosh. I'm like, why now? You know, yeah, went over to the house. The, the homeowner is kind of like freaking out, rightfully so. Because the painter said, you know, not wrap the tips of the ladders. so. Great. Like wrap the tips of your ladders. Okay. <laughs> Step one. <laughs> Don't forget to do that, particularly on metal siding. And um, so they had like put the ladder up against the back of the house, you know, created a dent, and then you know, kept painting and then put another dent in the back of the house. And then kept painting again, put another dent in the back of the house. But at that point, the base of the ladder, which this is also, I feel like I'm doing some training here, which is good. <laughs> I, still, <laughs> I still remember. <laughs> you know, the base of the ladder was on the stained deck. Right. Which obviously did not hold well.
1: Yes. Not a safe
0: spot. Yeah. Not a safe spot. So anyways, the painter fell off the ladder uh, with a yeah. full can of paint in their hand, creating multiple dents down the side. Obviously, the painter was luckily not not really injured, but went on workers' comp for a couple of weeks. Full can of paint all over the, the stained deck. And also, what I didn't realize was they didn't verify the color match, or I guess in the world of accountability, I did not verify the <laughs> color match with yes. The <laughs> the, the so i basically like, you know left this house and it was okay well i had damaged the entire back siding yeah one of my painters was on workers comp for multiple weeks i had basically busted up the deck yeah all the paint job done was was wrong and then the other painter just quit right so <laughs> it's pretty much that's more than the trifecta There, Chris. yeah, yeah. You basically yeah it's like whatever <laughs> yeah a full yeah. Like, home run uh of issues and then you know you find your way out of it, right? You Use your yeah. relationship building skills. You you know you listen to your client. You figure out how to rework it. Propose yeah. solutions. You lean on on your team, and you kind of just work your way through it. And we we eventually did get out of there without having to replace the siding. We had done a bunch of other work. You know, they yeah. the homeowner luckily agreed to put in the insurance claim. You know, we did a bunch of free painting for them. Double coat yeah. paint your garage. Paint your front door. Do your daughter's homework. Whatever you need. But you know, you go from that situation. You are like, oh my gosh, I have damaged this person's most prized asset, and then you find a way to work yourself out of it. And that's like a very real lesson. Yeah, you will have those tough moments, and I think you know those are the moments you, know, you don't want to have. But when you have them and you get through them, I think it just builds the confidence in terms of what you are able to do.
1: I think you are right, and and it's like I know you're because we've talked in in advance about you know the pandemic and just how future forward looking you are how confident you are how powerfully you're moving forward and those types of setbacks create that in the future like just that confidence that power i've had all sorts of big challenges in my life and i know i can get through it
0: yeah i think that's that's absolutely it like you have to and i think you've got to put yourself in why i love meeting with all the folks that signed up for the program right that's not mm-hmm. like the easiest summer job to go and do nope <laughs> Like like, you know, people like, oh, I'm gonna go lifeguard for the summer, which is super cool. No, well, I'm not trashing lifeguards. No, but it's, uh, you know, that would be more chill likely than like, you know, starting your own business and doing that. So hundred percent, it's awesome to see and work with a bunch of people that kind of have that desire to take a risk and take a chance and are willing to put themselves out there, you know, with the very real possibility of failure. Right. That's exactly like, it. You know, yeah. not everybody succeeds in the program, right? It's yes. Well. I'm sure with all of your success rate is getting higher every year, <laughs> but you know, there's
1: no, but you're right. Like just, just because again, you know, I guess you can fail at the Canadian tire job if you don't show up to your job, you know, just like, you know, here if people don't show up and do the things required in the job in running their own business, they won't be successful, but, yeah. but yes, there's no question. This is not a, a guarantee. This is, you know, this is a risk, just like, you know, the things that you're doing in your career. Right. Yeah. And, and so, when you look back on your career, when you get, you know, you're, you're out of Western, you're getting started, you know, what are you thinking? What sort of things, did, what sort of choices did you make for our leaders uh, moving forward?
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, I, what I would say is I was really entrepreneurial, wanted to try a lot of things. So whether it was the summer I did with, with Student Works, kind of operating that business, starting my own venture for the last two years while I was at school, you know, spent a summer working. Uh, Two summers working in Ottawa, more on the government mm-hmm. side. Right. The summer over in London doing investment banking. For me, it was a lot of really just trying different things to see where I'd want to net out. It wasn't inherently clear to me exactly what I wanted to do. Right. Um, I've always been very much a generalist. I would say, you know, that's got its pros and its cons, right? So I think long-term, it's, it's a great play because you get to see a lot of different things. You get to, you get to have a better perspective on, I think, on what you want to do. However, right. you know, for the folks that knew that from day one, I was always envious of those people. It's like, you know what, I want to go be in investment banking. Well, they went there, they were there when they were 21. You know, by the time you yes. were 31, you got on 10 years. I like I didn't start my first job at KPMG until I was, you know, 24 years old. 25, right. 25 years old. And for me, it was, you know, because I came out, I had a liberal arts degree, I'd run my own business. I had tried a lot of different things, but I mean that was a period of adversity for me as well, which was I didn't necessarily do well it was very thoughtful choice that I made to try all these different experiences, but it left me in a position where it was more challenging to inherently figure out exactly what I was going to do once I graduated. Um, So, you know, for me, it was really about at that point, looking yourself in the mirror and saying, okay, well, where are the weaknesses in your game that exist and attacking that weakness. Right. And, you know, and, and and kind of taking that risk to fail because I'll I'll never forget it is funny. I was, you know, applying for jobs that, no disrespect to, to the folks that fill those roles today, but that wouldn't be a job that I'd do now or even be in consideration for. And there was folks, you know, turning me down from those jobs. Right. And now I'm able to like sit back and laugh and it, it, it's kind of nice to, <laughs> to have gone through that and come out on the other side and be like, wow, you know, like I would never even consider being in a commercial banking rotation program. Right. That was, <laughs> that's not what you do coming out of McKinsey and Company. Right. But what I would say is, it was a tough ride. So I made sure just really focused, attack your weakness now rather than try and put it off and deal wow. with it later. So for me, right. that was a lot of feedback that I wasn't super quantitative. Yep. I had this liberal arts degree, I was super entrepreneurial. People liked that. i didn't seem to piss people off in my interactions with them. So there was yeah. a lot of good fits. Um, but people were like, you know, you're just not very quantitative. So that's when I was lucky enough to meet the guys at KPMG. And, and go there and, and do my chartered accountant's designation. Right. And that was really, you know, not a tremendous fit for me personally as, as somebody right. who's very entrepreneurial. It's amazing work. It's amazing training ground. I have a ton of respect for the people that are, it's an important function, you know, doing audit work. And for some people, they love that. And, and I really loved my training, um, but definitely, <laughs> definitely not what you'd call in my typical wheelhouse. But I think, you know, that was really the idea. Yeah. And, and on
1: the other hand, you know again there's this entrepreneurial you know you're really great with people and you just have a great positive energy that people want to be around and saying okay i'm going to do a whole bunch of work that's not me it's just not me and i'm going to do it so that on the other side i can have all these amazing skills that i have plus i've got this these capabilities and by the way chris so many people aren't willing to do that Okay, because it is really grinding yourself. It's
0: right? tough to do it, right? Like, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it, it's not fun to, you know, fly to like remote parts of, you know, wherever and like be, you know, vouching invoices to... Uh, it's not fun to, you know, make that little, <laughs> that little as you do in kind of an early stage accounting role. And it was tough, right? And you look around and like I said, I was 25 going into that. So I didn't come out of the back of it. And I actually didn't start at McKinsey until I was 28. So I was a 28 year old analyst at McKinsey. Right. And you know, all my other analyst peers were, were 20, 22 years old. With the exception of one other old guy who was also 28, which, right. which I love. But let's talk about
1: this. How did you get your gig at McKinsey? Is that's one of the best, if not the best, one of the best companies in the world to work for, obviously.
0: I was lucky, so I was lucky. I got an introduction uh, to a McKinsey senior partner when I just qualified for my CA, I was looking for other things to do. Was lucky enough through a family connection to get synced up with McKinsey's senior partner. Basically told him a similar story to what I just told you and put on the podcast. But it's you know really about how I thought about my career, about the reinvention, about attacking weakness. And I think McKinsey had done some study at the time, and and I can't quote it properly or do it justice. But you know I remember the paraphrasing from from the senior partner was basically you know we've done a study of a bunch of top leaders and the ones or, or, or business leaders or whatever, and the ones that have you know gone through adversity and come out on the other end, have you know like a step change factor more likely to be successful than those that don't. Um, mm. So your desire to go reinvent, attack weakness, go through something that was tough. He really liked that. I think part of my story and part of my character. They also right. really liked the fact, and this was a time where McKinsey was becoming very attuned to the importance of entrepreneurship. Right. So entrepreneurship actually was kind of in the rubric or, or whatnot for uh, for evaluation as you as you applied for the job and you and you talked about your kind of personal experiences, right? I think I was lucky in that you know it was early days in entrepreneurship, so it's like for me the stories I mostly told was about you know running my event marketing business, which was largely you know running parties while I was at Western. That was right. very entrepreneurial to McKinsey in that moment. I think now the bar is a little higher, so right. <laughs> so uh, you know now I feel like it's like you know you've got like a startup that is in series B and, you know, you, right. whatever. <laughs> so I just kind of lucked out, man. They liked the story. So, you know, they said, you should apply. Here's a person to, you know, you got to go online, submit your C B and whatnot. I did that. I went through the interview process. They made me go through a second set of final round interviews. I wasn't necessarily a logical fit, but I think they liked my story and, and whatnot. So, and I, and I was able to do the case, the, the casework pretty well in, in the interviews. So yeah, so anyways, I, I through my second set of final rounds, uh, which I understand is not a traditional process, right. I, I got a role there and showed up as uh, as an analyst when I was a little bit more tenured than than a lot of the folks. That's right. kind of how I, how I wound up at, at McKinsey.
1: And so describe the environment, the culture, you know, and and what what it's like to be working at
0: McKinsey. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most tremendous institutions in the world, right? I mean, I mm-hmm. absolutely love my time there, revere the institution think that the training it gives you from just a broad-based skill set as a problem solver is so yeah. important. You know, McKinsey will get its bad rap from The New York Times or, or, or whatever. I don't think the New York Times actually fully understands what McKinsey does. But quite frankly, it's, it's, it's an amazing institution. It creates a number of leaders. It teaches them how to be true lateral problems. You build a full toolkit in a place like me. And yeah. it's not just like a full toolkit management consulting. It's a full McKinsey and Company Management Consulting toolkit, which I yeah. think is, is, is really unbelievable. And so um, I think the training, uh, you get at a place like that is completely unparalleled. And the network you build and the folks you work with, I mean, it's a daunting place to show up to. I'll never forget. I was like the 28-year-old accountant uh, showing us starting as an analyst, right, which is kind of funny uh, in retrospect. And then you know, I'll never forget like, the guy sitting next to me who, who I still know really well was this PhD uh, in physics from MIT. I'm like, you're the guy. You're the guy that should be here for sure. I'm like, there's no way, fuck, that I should be here at all. I'm like, I think, I, uh, anyways, so I wound up uh, doing pretty well there. But it's a daunting place to be. And I would say, you know, it's, um, it's just a great place. Like I would suggest management consulting is the perfect place for anybody that doesn't know what they want to do. And then if you really like that industry or whatnot, as you go further and you do specialize. It actually remains a really tremendous place right. to work. Like I loved it. I had no, no real push or desire to, to leave kind of anytime in the near term. When I did, I wasn't really even thinking about it. But, uh, but when I'm doing that for, for a host of reasons, but I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty unbelievable place, but yeah, it's not easy, right? So it's No. Tell
1: our young leaders, uh, you know, more about it's not easy. Like what, like, you know, so.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, it's client service. Your clients aren't like they're paying you a fee, which is not small. Um, yes. So there's real expectations. You're often brought in to solve the most challenging problem or very tough problem. And sometimes it's a longer engagement, but many of the engagements are on a tight timeline. Right. So you get thrown in an environment where it's not cheap. Um, everybody's smart. Your clients are world-class institutions. And you've got to deliver on a tight timeframe and you kind of got to do what it like the McKinsey mindset would be, you know, we won't leave until the client's satisfied. Yes. That'd be the mindset. Like, and and if they're not, and they're, say we miss scoped the project and it was four weeks shorter than than it needed to be, we would probably just wind up doing the additional four weeks. Right. Like out of our pocket to, right. to do it. So the reality of it is it's it's a pretty intense place to work. But what I would say is the firm does a really great job making it a great place, like in terms of you know, it's really intense. So there's a lot of the institutional stuff built around it, which is, you know, you do like a team barometer every week to see how you're feeling, you know, right. the structure and the, way, the ways of working. I mean, it's just the ways of working there are really unbelievable. So as intense as it is, they do everything possible to build the right kind of structure around how you're working to make sure that people can, you know, their ways of working are respected. You know, if there's things that they need to do, you can go and get it done. Right. Um, so I found it actually really good in that respect, I guess, but it's also a little bit like a pie eating contest where the prize for first place is more pie. Yes. so if you really like pie, it's, it's amazing. And you just can kind of keep eating, and I really love pie. so right. um, you know you can kind of <laughs> you can work as much as you want to work, right which I did, and often for me it was the, the hours were really long, but in many cases it was they didn't always need to be as long, but I just really liked the work. I wanted to do better, I wanted to. Had a bit of a chip on my shoulder too, right? From being a 28 year old analyst. So I said in my mind that I wanted to get promoted from analyst to associate within 12 months. I don't think anyone had ever done that at the time. And, uh, and I did that. So it was, uh, you know, I kind of just went for it.
1: Yeah. And I remember, I remember it was, uh, you know, I was looking to get reconnected with you a number of years back and it was trying to find a time where you could, you could meet. And I knew you wanted to, but it was like, Well, Chris, you know, and and I remember you describing like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays were like 18 hour days or, you know, maybe longer. It was like I sleep five hours, Chris. So I have a slow day on Friday. I can do lunch, you know, two months out. And then, yeah, then I work Saturday and then I got some Sunday time with my with my amazing partner and uh, young, young babe.
0: Yeah, that was basically. (laughs) Yeah, there was, you know, I took it really seriously during the week. There wasn't a lot of balance. Yeah, in my life, which is probably not best practice in, in in a lot of ways. Like if I had to go back, it'd be probably a little bit more balanced. um mm-hmm. although at least uh, maybe I idealize or romanticize the idea of finding more balance, than probably right happened. um <laughs> But you know, you look back, you're like, ah, I should have been a little more, a little more balanced. But yeah, it was it it was immersive, right? It was yes. absolutely immersive. But I loved it. I mean, I I was really lucky to have honestly just some of the best mentors you could ever think of having. Um, people that I'm still in touch with to this day. I was lucky enough to have some some really wonderful clients I, that I worked with and just right. so many great friendships, right? Like yeah. I was never going to be the guy to get into to Harvard. So um, I got into an institution actually better than Harvard and McKinsey. Um, so yeah. you get a great network of folks that are in that same, you know, for me being a, a guy from Vancouver, British Columbia, that has a liberal arts degree from Western, it was, uh, it was always nice to be in an institution where you meet a bunch of other really tremendous people that, that you can connect with and, and,
1: and what. No, I, I, totally, I totally get it. And one of the reasons why I wanted to, to just kind of drill into that and tell the truth about that, Chris, was, was for our leaders, again, to be unbelievably successful in your life. There's a cost right? Or there's a payment. It's not necessarily a cost because I I know you're just totally enrolled and engaged and loved it. And there is this environment that, that helped create it and foster it. And again, there's, you know, again, I've worked in it tremendously in my life and I love it, you know? So it's, it's really getting that that's a huge part of really excelling in the world is just putting
0: that time in. I think that's right. And yeah, there is a cost, you know, like other friends of mine with friends, of, like, you know, they have stronger relationships and I have, a, you know, there's, a bunch of friends that went by the wayside that were like yes. you know, yeah. not my closest friends, my closest friends and I still still see them, you know, well, pre-coronavirus so at least kind of every couple of weeks that were yeah. but it's you know, my circle really tightened. Um, yeah. my relationship with my wife at points, you know, it really was not in a good place. Um, mm-hmm. it's uh you see your child less. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't going to the gym, I put on weight. Um yeah. It's, um, you know, my back was all messed up and I just wasn't going to physio to fix it. So like, I just took it to the extreme, but you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. Like there's, there's sacrifice. I think, and you could always see it. There are certain people that they wanted to come in, they wanted to do their couple of years and then they, you know, and work, you no know, everyone that came in, like it would be very hard to find someone that wasn't willing to put in the hours and do it a duck. But there's right. certain people that, you know, they just didn't care as much about it. Right. They weren't like, like if, you know, I had a bad client call it would, like ruin my weekend. Right. Yes. Right? Because I was just so competitive. So cared. So like, so cared. invested. So yeah. invested. Yeah. And that was, you know, honestly, a lot of that was the reason why I wound up leaving. Was one, I was just wanted to be given how invested I was, it didn't make economic sense for me to be mm-hmm. doing it for somebody else. Right. Because I was already just so all in mentally, physically, emotionally. I'm like, hmm. I'm getting pretty good upside. Don't get me wrong. You don't work for free. It's not a not-for-profit. right? But, you know, it was more, it was economic upside and control. was really it, right? You're like, if I'm investing that hard into it and like really, like truly emotionally invested in like the client relation, the team relationships, the problem, the solution, everything, and then just getting down to the final strokes and somebody being like, no, I'm just going to make this different decision. Right. That was completely untenable to me.
2: To,
1: to right
0: in that situation yeah so you know that's what eventually caused me to decide to go and it, it, it's just my entrepreneurial bent, right like
1: well yeah and that's not such a surprise either right because you know one of the things I'm sure about McKinsey is there's a lot of people amazing people who leave and then feel like you do oh that was so amazing right like and and there are so many opportunities to leave because people are always looking to recruit amazing yeah. people from McKinsey
0: yeah exactly I mean like it's and the cool part about it and the reason why you can stay for for so long if you really want to it's such an entrepreneurial place just just by in its nature right like one of the things that we had done and they had started up which was really cool was basically there was a thing internally called new ventures competition which the firm took you know part of its dollars and invested it you know they were losing all these people to startups right so like right seed our own people startup ah internally. and you know the the idea could be something that was was used for clients or it could actually be something completely consumer facing that what actually wasn't necessarily for clients. So, you know, that was one of the, um, one of those competitions that, that me and a couple of other people wound up winning and getting, you know, six figure funding for an idea that we had, it was actually for internal use. Um, But it's a cool, like entrepreneurial place in that respect. Oh, that's great. So I know you eventually
1: ended up moving. So why don't you tell us about that decision and that process, uh, you know, to HBC?
0: Yeah. So I, I think I hit part of it, which is, you know, desire for more control, oper- like being an actual operator, sitting on an executive team. Part of it too was there. You're very, um, you know, I couldn't sit on a public sector board or, or be involved politically or anything like that at McKinsey, which is which is a big passion of mine. So okay, that was kind of one of those things that I that I knew that I wanted to do and I couldn't do while I was there, and and knew because I couldn't do it while I was there that it wasn't going to be the long term role for me.
3: Like if I didn't right, okay
0: long term. I could have easily made the case that I'll just be super entrepreneurial within McKinsey and just stay there as, as long as I could have, right? Which I think would have been a while. So, um, but decided obviously to to take a different path, and then you know the role at Hudson's Bay came up for me, and you kind of look around the retail uh, and consumer sector in Toronto, and I would say it was really one of the very very interesting opportunities that was that was out there, right? Um, yep. You know, there's easier paths. For sure. <laughs> there, totally. Easier, easier paths that I could have taken for sure. Um, you know, you can read now about department store model. There's a great article in the New York Times about it a couple of days ago. It's a challenge sector fundamentally, right? But Hudson's Bay in itself is an amazing, iconic business, you know, that has some tremendous brand assets, a lot of great customer loyalty. It's occupied such an important place in the Canadian landscape for so many years. So you kind of look at that and you say, well, listen, here's a model that everybody says is dying. There's this great iconic brand that you know has a lot of tremendous brand assets. You know, why not take a run at seeing what you're able to do there and the impact you're able to have? Which is right. exactly what I spent the last week doing, basically helping do my part in charting the course for what that business will look like in in years ahead with the team that we had there, which was a great team. Um, and yeah, so that was that was pretty much the decision was. Take on a tough challenge again, and and see how that goes. You know, I had a lot of people thought I was absolutely crazy to, do, to go and do that. You know, some folks, <laughs> mentors might be like, "What? Like, why aren't you going to blue chip private equity fund X?" And it's right. like, you know, your X level performance at McKinsey, and that means typically. And I was like, "Well, I just don't really care about that." I'm like, I'm right. really interested in in being authentic to what I want to do, which is be in retail in the consumer space. Right. Um, not being afraid to take on challenges, quite frankly, getting lots of input from smart people, but not being driven to make a decision based on what somebody else tells me. It's like, I looked at that and it, it, it's hard for some folks to understand why I would take a role in, in a retailer that was, you know, like at the time was, was struggling a little bit, right? For sure. But again, I think there's, if you spend as much time, energy, et cetera, as, as I like to, you're always going to have this massive desire for impact. Yes. And partnering with folks and working towards something where you can have a massive amount of impact is much more exciting to me. Like there, are, you know, many of the ex-consultants wind up working in strategy functions within, within banks. Right. Amazing. Super stable. They're doing cool work. And, uh, you know, good teams, that sort of thing. But, it, you know, maybe the even better example is my wife works for Apple. Right. One of my buddies joking is like, well, he's like, no, he's like, I kind of get it because he's like, what are you going to go do? Work in strategy for Apple? Like, I think right. they largely got it figured out. Right. 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 You, know, you might help do some like interesting anal- analytics and not saying that you won't move the needle, but right. uh, you know, like the product dev and design team there is probably going to solve, you know, 95% of the problem or, you know, 60%, whatever it is, right. With a great marketing function. And that's like it. And then everybody else is just rallying around that. Where right. you know, I felt at Hudson's Bay, There's a chance to have broad impact in a number number of ways, and you can really move the needle and push a project. And you know, you put a piece of knowledge, you do a piece of work, and fundamentally changes a decision. Which you know, there was a number of instances of that, which I was really uh, excited about to be part of. Um, yeah, so it was was a great experience. But you know, obviously, moving on to to the new venture that that was just something that was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. Right, and. my business partner, guy named John McCarthy, was uh, a lead investor at the Omers Pension Fund for almost 15 years, and really good friend of mine. I actually worked at Omers for a year, kind of in between my McKinsey time, and mm-hmm. uh, in between my two stints at McKinsey, and uh, easily one of the smartest guys that I know. Tremendous right. investment track record. Decided to leave Omers, you know, years ago, and start his own fund. And you know, I was talking about. I had just left HBC kind of at the time that he was going to do that. So a lot of the conversation was, you know, okay, let's bounce ideas around. We're good buddies. We work together. We always said we'd work together again when I left Omers. Right. And uh, so let's bounce ideas around, but it's too early for me with Hudson's Bay. But, you know, as we started to build the team and look at the profile and types of people we want, he eventually said to me, he's like, well, he's like, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z things. Do you know anybody from a former management consulting background that worked at Best consulting firm in the world that could fill. Out. I was like, okay, all right, let's do it. So,
1: um, <laughs> so and, was this uh, skill set? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. I'm like, anyways, it was, it was very complimentary. I would never be that complimentary with myself, but yeah. So, I mean, when you find somebody like that who's as brilliant as John is, who you trust and work so well with, you know, there's very few people that I would go and kind of take a massive amount of risk with. Uh, right. Partner, but John is, is is one of those guys that he's at the top of the list, so. It's uh, you know, the opportunity was too good to pass up to go and to go and launch together.
1: That's awesome. And you've named it Venn, Venn Capital. So why Venn Capital? I love why you named it Venn.
0: Yeah, we're very structured thinkers. We like frameworks a lot. So, you mm-hmm. know, the Venn diagram is one that we often use because we use it to often uh, parse through what we see as situations where you're presented with false alternatives. Right. So uh, you know, the example that you and I talked about, which is how I think about it from our team and the type of talent we're bringing on, you know, when when you're talking about people and you're thinking about bringing people on, it's always like, oh, this person's really confident, but you know, they're super confident, maybe a little overconfident, or whatever, and they're not that humble. And then you meet somebody, you're like, oh, they're they're they've got a lot of humility, but they're a little bit shy and quiet, whatever. I'm like you know, it's you're always trying to paint somebody with the brush of this or that, but for us, we like the we like the Venn in that intersection between confidence and humility. With all of the folks that we bring on, and finding people with the appropriate balance of being able to come in, do good work, assert yourself, be comfortable sharing your ideas—no ego—but the mix of no ego, you know, you can put them in any situation with the management team. They're not going to embarrass you. They're going to have the humility to self-identify what they know versus what they don't know, uh, which is really important in in our world where there's a lot of, you know, particularly consumer and retail. There's so many. You always just think like, oh, it's a store. It's you know, it's not that top. I'm a consumer, so. I can give some good opinions about what this business should be about. It's like, I fundamentally think that that's untrue. Um, yes. <laughs> a lot of moving pieces to, you know, operating an apparel retailer, right? From yes. you know, with the product, you know, how it's distributed, selling it, you know, different channels. It, it, there's a lot there. So, um, you know, we like folks with the, the the confidence, but also with the humility. And I'd say when we go and we look at investment opportunities as well, it's a lot of, You know, where are the intersections between these different concepts and and whatnot? So that's the genesis of of the name.
1: Hey, leaders. I hope you are enjoying this podcast. As we approach and surpass 300 episodes, well over 95% of the leaders that we have interviewed have been alumni of the Student Works Management Program. It has been an honor to participate in their development over the years. Starting now and only for the fall months, we will be on campus at universities and colleges in Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down the path of entrepreneurship. If you are interested in being a leader in our program or know someone who does, please go to the show notes and hit. Student works and get sent to a landing page to apply. There is a bold student works that you can hit to go to a landing page to apply. Thanks so much. Back to the show. So, I'm actually going to put this uh, podcast in the fall during our key recruiting time because because you're a rock star, Chris. But um, <laughs> this is late April, okay? So we're in a pandemic, and so. It's. We were talking earlier as well that the opportunity to really start a hedge fund in a pandemic is really kind of an amazing timing, you know. And I and I'd love you know just to sort of share you know it's it's one of those things where things happen, and timing matters, you know. Maybe you could share that with uh, the the leaders uh, listening to the podcast.
0: Yeah, timing definitely matters, and I think sometimes you get lucky, which is a hard word to use in the middle of a in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, but yeah, I would say on this one in terms of. Our timing, we're definitely um, you know, I think we have something that a lot of private equity funds and for us, we're we're launching, you know, we'll we'll raise, we'll see how much we'll raise, but you know, it'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, two to four hundred million US um, right. for our fund. And it'll be consumer focused, so healthcare services, education, or kind of other consumer and retail. And uh, and I think in that space, if you look at a lot of funds that have done consumer deals, there's been a huge run on on gyms. In the private equity space restaurant really tough spaces to be in right now okay you look at a lot of funds they've got they're just like very very highly exposed to those verticals and i think it's going to be tough for a number of funds to survive this or you know they'll probably survive but you know how much capital will they deliver back to their investors um that'll be a really tough tough battle and then i think you know getting and actually making some type of multiple on your capital is also gonna be really hard. So in that case it's gonna to be tough to compensate your employees the way they've typically been compensated. So I think it's you know for consumer funds, there's of course those which are just institutions that will continue to do well, like the L catartsons of the of the world. For a number of other funds, I think it's gonna be extraordinarily tough. There's a tough road ahead. And we're again using the word lucky really kind of tough, but we're fortunate, I guess, to have the clean balance sheet, clean timesheet. I think a lot of folks in the investing industry would like because the private equity asset class is something that typically does really well coming out of tough times. So the ability for us to be completely unencumbered to go and pursue new opportunities is something that will be beneficial to us, I think, as we launch the fund and go and fundraise and start to look at things. So, you know, um, if we had started a year earlier and deployed a bunch, raised a bunch and deployed a bunch, I think it could be tough, right? You're like a number of companies, Again, take there's one deal that we're, we're looking at, and this is actually I think a very good deal coming post out of, out of closures, but and they're lucky to only have one location, but it's you now you're shut for three months, so you've got a whole head office you know and like team and footprint and everything you're just sustaining that with effectively very little or zero revenue for many consumer brands for months at time. It's really tough out of and would be yeah you know the idea of plowing money into something like that just to sustain it, to come on the back end with, you know, less business would be, would be tough. So I think, you know, we're going to be fortunate timing wise Yeah, and now it's up to us to to make all the right decisions with the capital we're going to get. I think we did, I think I shared with you, we had a deal in the U S that we were looking at that we ultimately decided not to close because we were worried about the impact of, of, of COVID-19. Right. And that was not an easy decision for a number of reasons we had, a ton of time and effort into the deal. We had worked really closely with the management team. We felt really good about the partnership we'd established. We liked the sector. We had a six-figure personal guarantee for not closing. Uh right. there's a number of reasons to want to do the deal. But ultimately it just came down to you can't be emotional about transactions. You just yeah. have to look at the facts ahead of you and make the best decisions on the time and try and be prudent, particularly when you have other folks' capital. So we had to walk away from closing that deal. But you know, so we're again a little bit lucky on timing there, but it's it's not just being lucky on timing it's timing and having the right team around the table to make the right decisions and right calls, which is why I feel really fortunate to have a partner like john who's who's tremendous and I think we'll we'll bring a really great team together uh, when we yeah work.
1: and and I think i i I wanted to make sure our our leaders saw that again sometimes you know the choice you made about an industry or the choice you made about timing it can really have a massive positive or negative impact. And it's just a choice. Sometimes again, you know, you're gonna be making sure that post COVID-19, you're making good decisions, you know, in this COVID-19 world moving forward. You know, fortunately I chose a business that is really, you know, well set up to do well, you yeah. know, in this post COVID-19, unlike gyms or travel or hotels or all sorts of other industries. So. And some of that's just dumb luck. Um, now, again, if you don't execute, it doesn't matter. If, there, you know, if you don't have that perseverance, that hard work doesn't matter. But it's, it's interesting for people to see that. you know. Yeah. And again, as we were talking earlier, the humility to understand that, right? Yeah, that's just some... some yeah. yeah,
0: that's exactly it. I mean, um, I think that's, you know, thinking about it too and going in, establishing a partnership with somebody else, there is this important, this really important part about your team, right? Yes. Nobody can do everything on their own. I mean, you could be the last dance documentary, which, which is coming out. I think We're both,
1: big basketball fans, yeah, Chris and I.
0: <laughs> which I love, right? Because it's, you, know, you hear Michael Jordan saying, you know, paraphrasing him, it's like, no one should ever be talking about Michael Jordan without mentioning Scottie Pitt in the same, in the same sentence, right?
2: Yes. So, yeah.
0: The importance of kind of having a team that you can make decisions with, being a good team player, those things are, are critical. You bet. Yeah.
1: Like So what about, you know, failures or mistakes and how do you think about that? How do you learn from those?
0: Man, I, I think it's just, it's taking the time to understand why you did some, why something happened a certain way. Right. And then, mm-hmm. and then what are the kind of structural things you build into your routine or your game to make sure those things don't happen again? Or how do you, you know, surround yourself with it Like it just depends on what the situation is, but you know, your failures and your mistakes can be, your absolute best lessons. Yeah. Um, so it's even like, you know, and sometimes it's failures, mistakes, or issues that are created by you. Sometimes it's, you wind up in the middle of a pandemic. Um, <laughs> That's right. Don't waste a good crisis. Um, yeah. Was, is, is something that we've heard and we say all of the time. Yeah. Uh, John and I are very, you know, very laser focused on don't waste a good crisis, right? So what are we doing with our business? What are we doing to build something you know, we don't want to look back at this thing in five, 10 years and say, yeah, we did fine. It would be pretty unacceptable.
3: <laughs> <I> <laughs> love that. So,
0: yeah. you know, <laughs> don't waste a good crisis. And a lot of that's, a lot of that's understanding and doing the right level of deep understanding and then making, you know, making your choice based on that. Move forward.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting in this pandemic, I find the people who are like, the biggest jobs, the best jobs, all that sort of stuff are the busiest because that's how they see it. Don't waste a good crisis. What does my business need to look at like afterwards? What do I need to work on and develop myself now? How can I do that? And I understand as well for some people, maybe they're not in that spot. So it's harder to make those decisions, but it is interesting. Again, just again, how do we take these mistakes? How do we take these challenges and turn them into, you know, really great stuff?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's one... I want to say it was Anderson Horowitz, one of the VC funds, which is you know one of the articles trying to like what are what's being built, like what are people building right
1: now? It's Anderson Horowitz. I wrote yeah. that. Yeah, read that article. Yeah.
0: Sort of, as as like you, it's like the volume of what I've read is probably, I mean, you used to read a lot, but it's yeah, <laughs> you know, it's even more. Yes. Lots, yeah, lots more time to read now. Um, we ask that question to ourselves, like what are we truly building, or you know, for the deals that we want to do. How would we partner and what would that what would building something look like? I mean, we aren't just investors that want to kind of check, right? And be, right. we want to only really do deals where we're true partners with management teams and right. they need the value that we can bring and add to those deals. So it's, it's, we're obsessing over it right now. So we've actually got a mix of things where there's deals we're looking at, where we'll be part of build, buying and building. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no ideas where we just flat out said, you know what, we actually know a bunch of talented people. Here's a broad thesis. Let's put them together and see what we can go build and we'll see we'll, we'll again. Wow. So cool. we more things We're not doing those inside the fund, but again, looking back on don't waste a good crisis, you know, what are we building that can, you know, be sustainable, that can be different, that can solve a need for somebody that's going through a tough time. We spend a lot of time thinking about that.
1: That's cool. So as you went from like a, university student to a, you know, huge value creator in the world. What did you need to change about yourself, Chris?
0: I think a lot of it was just doubling down on the hard work piece, okay. you know, like it's, and I kind of learned that lesson, started to learn that lesson earlier. My career, really learned it at McKinsey it was where I kind of went to school and was, was taught that, like always had the ethic, but had never probably pushed myself quite as hard as I could have. Right. And then, you know, that's when you wind up in a situation where you're a 28-year-old analyst and you're like, well, shit, I've, I've got stuff to make up here. Right. And that was just the biggest thing to me is, and, and particularly in that environment where you really truly are with a bunch of people where I at least felt, I'm like, you know, my GMAT score was in the 500s. Like I, right. I eked into my master's program and, right. you know, not going to send testing or whatever, but, you know, I'm clearly not. Far off, I'm like, I'm in the stratosphere, but I'm, I'm like, I'm not, you know, the PhD from MIT, that guy's the smartest guy in the room because the books. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So it's, you kind of learn in that environment what it takes to thrive. And, you know, you always see those parallels, I guess, when you're watching sports growing up, right? Like what makes For LeBron sure. James, Ron James and going back to the the last dance, like what makes Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan? It's like, man, those guys put in a lot of time and they're, 100%. they're competitive. And so I think you have to ask yourself at some point in your career, like, what do I want out of it? Like, what am I, where am I trying to go? What am I trying to achieve? What's yeah. the impact that I'm trying to have? And then kind of setting yourself up around that. For me, that meant accelerating my commitment to, to my craft and what I was doing.
1: Yeah. And again, it's it's really important to get as well. It's not necessarily healthy what Chris wants, right? It's just what Chris wants. Chris wants to be massively impactful in the world, right? Like it's, there are sacrifices that's involved in it, but it's you know he really wants to be amazingly effective, amazingly successful, uh, make a huge contribution, right? Like that's really that's what I get from you, right? And and again, I feel the same way, you know. Thinking about you know again getting better and better at your craft, you know, and because there's all sorts of ways to go through this life and not do it that hard, right? And have a great life.
0: And yeah, and, and, and you know, it's it's not for everybody, and it's not to say one's better than the other, but. Nope. If it's just for you. Then it's for you. Like you know, I think you and I joked at the training session where you are like, you know, why do you? And it's like, if I could figure out why I was wired this way, I would pay somebody <laughs> a lot of money to be able to figure that out. But it just, I, I don't know. It is what it is. There is no amount of yeah it, it could unfurl. You know, that the answer to that question. Um, <laughs> but it kind of is what it is, and you know, you just you set yourself up for that, and then you know, you commit to it. And I would say that I would. I would just say like the other thing too is just. I think the importance of relationships and treating people really well, yeah, that, for sure, is so important, right? Like the multiplier effect or benefit that your network can have for you as you kind of grow throughout your career. I've been just unbelievably lucky to have so many people that have been helpful to me, and and uh, many uh, try and give back as much as possible um, yeah. to pay it back. But it, it almost feels like it's an impossible task to do that because right. I've been so so lucky. But it's. You know, I think the importance of treating people well and, and, and whatnot is just a lesson that should, should not be lost. hundred percent. And
1: again, I wanted to dig in that as well for our leaders who go, hey, I want to really, really have a, a remarkable life, you know, just lining that up with, and that's going to take a remarkable amount of hard work and really getting that those things are going to align. Because otherwise I'm just, I've, I've got dreams that are not going to be created. You know, so.
0: But yeah, I mean, everybody likes the idea of being a multimillionaire. Like, yeah. would you know what I mean? If you're like sitting there, and someone's like, yeah, "I could give you five million dollars," like, yeah, love that. That would raise a lot okay. of my problems. My quality of life would improve. Yeah, if there's very few people. It's like you know why people buy lottery tickets, right? Like everyone yeah. likes the idea. Um, and listen, there's a bunch of people that are kind of structurally disadvantaged. It's harder for that type of thing. Um, but there's a lot of people where it's like, listen, it's just a function of how badly you want it right? Yeah. And what you're willing to do and what you're willing to put in and that type of thing. Everybody likes the idea of it, but I'm telling you, and I mean, Chris, you know, this just as well as anyone, but it's the idea of it versus what it looks and feels like to do it. It's <laughs> completely different things. 100%. 100%. <laughs> you better love the process.
1: Yeah. You better <laughs> love the process. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and like yeah. you said, I know you're loving reading those articles. You're loving doing you know, the fact finding and, and again, having the meetings and working with a great team, right? Like that's a, that's a love for you. Just like, again, I love what I do,
0: right? Yeah. I think, I think you got to go to things that you're passionate about, right? So Mm -hmm. when I was early in my career, I just continually try to convince myself that, you know, there was easier paths for me than going into retail and consumer, um, just based on what my family had done or or people I knew or whatever. I kept convinced, trying to convince myself, like, Oh, I'll go into, you know, like, Financial services, or I'll go into mining or something like that. I just couldn't get up right. about it. And right. the second that you know I started to get into investing in consumer and retail, it's like you kind of stop feeling like you're working, right? Which is the best part about it. So,
2: you know, totally.
0: Yesterday, it's you know you're up at whatever time. I think we wrapped at like twelve twenty in the morning, and and you're like, yeah, fine, just went to bed and you know slept, woke up, and started doing it again, and. It's exciting so yeah it's uh and, it, and that's why i think you know like the earlier stuff so i now that i, I can joke about it a little bit more not entirely because you know it's not like i've made it i've got decades of work to do before i really make it right but kind of at least being out of like the grind of you know being that 25 year old legal arts graduate um yeah i i, I think just the importance of, of passion cannot cannot be undersold
1: 100 percent So one final question, Chris, when you think of a leader of tomorrow, what comes to mind?
0: There's so many ways that I could take this one. We need leaders that have a broad toolkit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, specialization is great, but you kind of need folks that are like, we always try and find like, who's the athlete, who's like the five tool person that we can hire who's, you know not just really good book smart person with some functional expertise, that's great. But you know, like, what else are they doing? What interests do they have? How do they treat people? How do they communicate with people? Like, yeah. I think you just need kind of more multifaceted leaders that can be really good at data-driven decision-making. Like particularly in the world today, I think you see a lot of, I know it, it, you're, it, it's tough to find true like data-driven decision-making. A lot of it, there's a lot of noise and I just think that leaders that are really good lateral thinkers, problem solvers, five tool, call it whatever you want.
2: I just
3: yeah.
0: generally think it's like good problem solvers that yes. understand how to use data. And that's what we need more of.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Um, well, well, Chris, uh, this has been really insightful. I've learned a lot. I, I love speaking with you. Thank you for being so generous of your time with me. I, I look forward to a day in the future where we're going to go to a Raptor game. Um, <laughs> can <wait. laughs> <laughs> what is that going to happen? So, so, I know.
0: Well, in the future, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, we're going to live a long time, Chris. I just no. want to get a basketball game played on TV without any fans. Just, you know what I mean? If the athletes can be safe, let's do it.
1: I can't wait. Can't wait. Okay, my friend, you have an awesome day.
0: All right, man. You too.
1: Cheers. Hey, leaders. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Bye now